All right, all right, all right. Welcome back, ladies and gents. BPAC Muscle Intelligence Podcast. Today's guest has become one of my favorite people to learn from. Really, really quickly, I've discovered this man sort of by accident. Someone actually mentioned his name, and I just decided to check him out and Google him and started kind of going down the rabbit hole of understanding his approach, his theories, and was incredibly pleasantly surprised when uh, I found some really, really useful, really unique and insightful perspectives and approaches, and ultimately things that were super actionable uh, that I could apply to my life really quickly. And it's a bit of a contrarian approach. It's not your typical stuff that you hear. And so I took a really deep level of interest in Joel Green's work, and Joel is my guest today on the podcast. If you haven't heard of Joel, uh, it's okay. Either had I just a few weeks ago. And if I'm being honest, Joel is the guy that I've been diving into more than anyone in the world right now and trying to understand how he approaches health, how he approaches longevity, how ultimately how he approaches uh, movement optimization and all of his integral systems that he's integrated into a book and a system that he calls the immunity code. And his interesting perspective ultimately on how immunity is governing fat loss. What if we took an immune-centric approach to fat loss that I'd never he heard this before? It's such an interesting, valuable, incredibly unique insight that uh, nobody has ever conveyed to me before, but seemingly incredibly effective. So some of the key points from today's interview, how we can use data to make effective decisions, how your microbiome is affecting your weight loss, how your microbiome is directly affecting your immune system, which is ultimately directly affecting weight loss and fat loss. The importance of maintaining endothelial health. Uh, we talk about Joel's book and business called The Immunity Code and a 48-hour pattern inspired by nature's rhythms. This is maybe one of the most useful constructs that I've come across is trying to uh, get or in realignment or realign with nature's natural rhythms. And he'll talk about what nature's natural rhythms are right at the end of the podcast. Uh, a framework for understanding the uh, interrelation between immunity and the metabolism. And Joel's products and um, courses have made a big impact on my understanding of some of the things that were maybe gaps in my understanding previously. So Joel, if you're listening, my friend, thank you for what you do. And thank you for being a pioneer. And thank you for ultimately uh, impacting what will soon be millions of people if it's not already. Joel is a consultant for multi-billion dollar companies like Quest Nutrition and more on things like engineering food to extend lifespan. He's been featured on Dr. Phil and top tier publications like obviously Muscle and Fitness and CBS. Um, and his book, The Immunity Code, has sold a very large number of copies uh, in just the last three years. And he's got another book coming out, so I hopefully we'll have him on soon. And he's just a great communicator, right? Really calm, really humble, and just does a great job. So uh, ladies and gentlemen, I know you're gonna love this podcast. And when you do love this podcast, you'll wanna head over to Joel's website. If you just Google the immunity code or VEEP, which is his nutrition system. The VEEP stands for the Visual Eating and Energy Pro, or sorry, an exercise program. Um, you'll find an enormous amount of stuff on Joel. Today's podcast is brought to you by our friends over at Organifi, organifi.com slash muscle. 
Organifi is back to hook you guys up with the highest quality greens product, or one of certainly the highest quality greens products that exist. Organifi is 100% organic, loaded with superfoods, uh, loaded with um, high quality nutrients, just so you know that your body's getting some things that ultimately promote health, things that stimulate learning, memory, focus, clarity, BDNF in the brain, uh, it directly addresses the gut-brain axis, supports strong cognition. You can get their Sunrise to Sunset Kit, which is ultimately 30 travel packs, so you can take them with you everywhere you go. And they've got an incredible suite of products from morning hydration to protein. And uh, you know, my favorite one from them is always going to be the Organifi Gold which is this beautiful uh, evening drink that calms me down, makes me feel like I'm having a little treat, and ultimately doesn't spike my blood sugar. So thank you to Organifi for sponsoring the podcast. We always want to bring no cost to consumer information, and these these sponsors allow us to do so. And these are always, as you guys know, products I believe in, products I use. I consistently use the greens. I consistently use the reds. Uh, and beyond, to be honest, my suggestion for greens is don't always use the same greens product. You shouldn't always use one and, and stay on it. My approach is you'll usually use one bottle and then I'll switch because all of them have different um, superfoods. All of them have different ratios of micronutrients. And so I'll use one bottle or one box or whatever it happens to be. And then I'll switch to a different company and then I'll rotate back. And this is why um, Organifi is back with another uh, offer for you guys, 20% off at Organifi.com slash muscle. Ladies and gents, enjoy this incredible conversation with Joel Green. Mr. Joel Green, thank you very much for joining me, sir. I'm a fan. I've been following you from social media, a little bit on your website and through your uh, public exposures to YouTube and uh, love what you're saying. A lot of things are very much in alignment to what I'm saying. thought I would uh, get you on here to dig a little bit deeper because you've been doing this longer than me and it seems like you have a very unique approach. So thank you for making the time. Thank you. Yeah. I, I, uh, like I said, uh, just in the pre-show, um, I, I was blown away by how much I thought kind of we were really drinking from the same cup. So yeah. You know, uh, they say this often, but I feel as though the people who are actually using their brain instead of just following mindlessly tend to end up on the same things. People who are pushing it, uh, pushing their body, pushing their mind. It seems as though, you know, I, at the top of the totem pole, everyone seems to be saying the same thing, or at least for the most part. There's certainly some experts who have a completely different polarized view to probably both of us. But uh, I would say most of the people that I am exposed to, and like I'll bring contrarians on as well, people who have opposing views, like I want I want you to convince me that I'm wrong. But in general, it seems like most of the people who are actually doing this at a high level and applying it end up on the same thing. Because you know, as you'll know, there's people who are science zealots, which is like data, the data doesn't, doesn't support that, which is okay. But I just like, you just haven't applied it yet. Like if you apply it long enough, you know, you see where the data holds up and where it breaks down. Gosh, well, there's a three-hour podcast right there. Totally. <laughs> Thank you. So, boy, that touches into a lot of things. Uh, top of the list would be that real knowledge is doing. You know that that's the that's the real knowledge, and we're we're kind of in a we're in a world right now where everybody's vying to be a Sherpa, but very few have actually been up the mountain. And it's the ones that have been up the mountain that you want kind of kicking you on the track, I think. And yeah. you just get. To, there's a lot of things that you can sort of empirically kind of harvest and, and think, okay, well, that makes a lot of sense. I think I'll try that. And then when you actually do the thing and do it long enough, all these other variables come into play and there's just so much more to it. So, yeah. but to your point, yeah, I agree. I think there, there is a, 
there's just a confluence of things that push us in a direction as as this machine we call the body is running through its life cycle. And so certain things at certain points in time become really, really important and they may not have been as important earlier in life. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and again, to your point, I think it's knowledge is contextually relevant, right? Like I think science is incredible. I think it's very, very relevant. I think it's very, very useful as a starting point. But again, as you know, when you start to push it in different arenas or with different people, the data breaks down at some level inevitably. And then and it's the people who push it beyond that to go, oh, yeah, when, when you're right, that data is correct. And then this is next. And so I think, I think, I think we're on the right path. I think, as you say, like some people look at the world through a straw and they neglect the forest for the trees. And sometimes it takes someone who's a deep generalist to come in and go, oh, but you didn't. And you, you, you speak about this often. You know, every good thing also comes with it, potentially a negative negative side effect or a negative side as well, right? Every positive has, an, has, a, has a potential downside. Because the body is a complex system, nothing is working linearly, but people work in this like linear fashion. Yeah, there's another three-hour podcast. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you touched on something I think is uh, exceptionally important, which is it's the, rel- it's the relevance of empiricism and, and, and there's a lot there's a whole thing that we could we could just spend all the time on that but it's you know i I run across a spectrum of different sort of like uh let's call them experts um or influencers or what have you and they have this there's this very interesting range of relationships with empirical data some people are just like you said they're completely zealots and you know that's all they're looking at and then others disregard the data completely and then they're just like you know all the science is junk all the science is garbage and i think that there, there's a there's a discussion there worth having because, in terms of quote unquote the data, most of it probably is junk, and that's not from me. That's that's from that's what scientists will tell us mm-hmm. in their in their in their. They don't use that word. They use they use low quality low quality studies, you know, which is to just indicate that it, it's mostly make work. You know, some scientists needed to do a gig and they came up with some data, whatever. You know, but it's so most of the data probably isn't that great, and and so there's that. But then there's a significant portion of the data that's very, very good. Yeah. And we can't just ignore it. Uh, we, we can't ignore it. And you find that topic to topic to topic. So you'll find this um, very interesting thing where I'm, I'm seeing these trends bubble up. One is just this um, merging of my personal beliefs with reality, which is, so, you know, I believe I believe that the data is junk and therefore it is. And he, the only truth, the only way we can know truth is because I, because my experience tells me what's true. Okay, that's valid too, but you can't completely throw the data out either. Right. You know, like like it at the very least, it's suggestive rather than rather than sort of you know biblical in its nature. But we can never throw the empirical data out. It does it does kind of give us finer and finer approximations into what might be true, and it, it's just interesting looking now at the range of um, the range of reactions to empirical data now. It, there are issues. There, there are issues of like, you know, a lot of the data is not good. You know, there's these biases. There's a lot of things we don't know. There's, you know, there's paradigm errors and all that. But then there's also really good data too. Mm-hmm. And um, it's that merging of like actual experience, doing stuff, taking what the data suggests and all that. And all those things play a factor. And it's, it's, uh, it's just interesting watching how there's one silo of people that's just getting away from looking at data and just and, and wanting to be an influencer and an expert and 
none of the data matters. All that matters is what I say, which is ridiculous, I think. I mean, we have to, we cannot ignore the data completely. Um, and then there's the other side of it, which is really slavish to it. And so it, it's a thing. I don't know. Sorry. For the average person, they, there's, they have no idea how to navigate that, right? They're not certainly not going to sit down and spend the next 30 years reading all the data to try to sift through it all. They're getting thrown snippets of information from a thousand different sources. And, and sometimes, as you'll know, the person that screams the loudest on social media gets the most attention, or maybe the person who has the most outlandish uh, approach or the most outlandish theories gets a lot of attention, or maybe it's just the people who have a, a theory that's in alignment with what you think is real for you. And so it's really hard for an average person to navigate this stuff. So like, you know, I look to people like yourself and, and, and other amazing experts who are just like, hey, I'm actually investing my life for the last 40 years and more to to really understand this stuff. And I think this is how uh, we start just to, to draw our own conclusions of what really is applicable to us. So uh, I'm very grateful for you making the time. I want to dive into starting off with, you know, the Immunity Code, which is which is a book that's taken a lot of people by storm. I know Ron Penna very well, by the way. I know he's a big fan of yours. Yeah, I was involved with Quest for a little bit. Um, wonderful, wonderful man. I th who I respect tremendously. I know he's a huge fan. And I'd love to have you kind of give us a, give us a breakdown as to how you came about uh, the theory for the Immunity Code and then what the Immunity Code is. Uh, yeah. So um, the best answer would be a whole lot of rumbling, stumbling, bumbling. That would be really the most <laughs> accurate answer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, but just kind of linearly uh, breaking it down. I was I was a, a fitness nerd from the age of five. Um, early adopter, fitness nerd, uh, Jack Lang, um adherent, and jumped on the running craze in fourth grade Olympic. I used to watch the Olympics a lot, so sprinting was a thing. So in fifth grade, you know, other kids were playing like, you know, softball. I was going to the blacktop and just trying to get faster. And then, and I was very much influenced by the emergence of bodybuilding in the um, late 70s. So I, I just used to go to the magazine rack for hours and it was about the time. Saying, Who's your guys? You got you to tell me, I'm a bodybuilder. Who's your guy? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so my, um, Frank Zane was kind of always my um, yeah. epitome of like what I would like to do with myself. Yeah. And, uh, but then, gosh, along the way, I mean, just to name, oh man, still the most mind boggling back ever, probably Samir Benut. Yeah. Such uh, a gentleman. I don't know if you got a chance to meet him, but he's such a nice guy. He bumped into him once. I have a, I have a Joe Gold story, actually. He kicked me out of uh, his gym. No, I just, uh, I was, I was just a starstruck nerd. You know, I uh -huh. uh, lived in Orange County and drove up uh, to Santa Monica one day and, you know, just sat in awe uh, inside his gym. And there was Tom Platts, Bob Paris, Muhammad Makaway, you know, all these guys. And I, I just had my jaw open like this. And he walks up and he's like, hey, how you doing? I'm like, I'm uh, fine. And he's like, have a free workout. And I was like, okay. And then um, I did some kind of math in my head of like, yeah, if we come back tomorrow on a Saturday morning, they're all getting their workouts in. Let's do that. So came back the next morning and, you know, and I was just kind of start, I didn't even want to work. I just wanted to stare at these guys. And and Joe Gold came up and he goes, I gave you a free workout. And I was like, yeah. And he goes, out. And wow. the whole gym, Tom Platts, everybody turns around, looks at me. It's like this skinny punk that got thrown out of the gym. So, uh, yeah, that's my story. But uh, got on the Tom Platts train kind of when he blew up. Uh, Mike Mensner, I've always done kind of heavy duty for the most part. And then huh, early early 90s, um, when Dorian kind of just took the world by storm, leveling up the mass train and and then just Ronnie Coleman nuthugger, you know, like from day one. <laughs> he didn't, he, I don't know if there'll ever be a man again like, like that. Never. Just like oh my perfect storm. Yeah, just ridiculous. Yeah. Come on. Yeah. Like, 
I mean, just, yeah. It, it, what, what can you Never say? I compete against Ronnie, unfortunately. My first year as a pro was his last year as a pro, and, and I just missed the Olympia qualification, just missed it. And I was like, oh, man, I was hoping he'd compete again, but I missed it. You know, it's funny you say that. I was looking at, uh, so again, I mentioned before the show, I, I didn't actually, I wasn't aware that you had competed in the Olympia. So I was kind of, you know, looking at some pictures online and stuff. And I, I'm just from a different generation that had a different uh, preference. Francis Benfado would have been like the perfect Mr. Olympia to me. Yeah, so, for sure. You know, I was just looking and I was, I was looking at your stuff and I was like, in a sane world, this guy would be Mr. Olympia. Oh, thank like, you. Like, seriously, like, like, what's missing here? There, there was some moments where I, where I hit it pretty well, and there was a lot of moments where I didn't. It was just like learning, you know. I, I didn't have any great mentors, and, and I, I, don't, I shouldn't say that. I had a lot of great mentors, but not a lot of great mentors in bodybuilding. A lot of it for me was trial and error, which now is my greatest advantage. But at the time, was just like figuring it out. I wouldn't, it wouldn't hit the conditioning perfectly. So, um, yeah, if I kept going, maybe I would have got there. Well, it, I, it's, it, it just gets to standards, you know, it just gets to, yeah. I think bodybuilding just went way too far down the road of just the mass monster train. And it just, it just lost a lot in, in doing that. And man, you were, I don't, I don't know where you're at now, but I mean, the peak of, wow. I mean, thanks. You kind of had it all. Thanks. Yeah. It, it didn't come easy and I enjoyed the process. I re- I've been retired for seven years. So I retired in 2016 and well, the reason I retired, I had two amazing children and a family and now you shift. I get asked that question a ton, actually, by my listeners. They don't know why I retired. Like, did you get? Are you sick? Are you injured? I'm like, I just, <laughs> I just lost. I just lost the desire, man. Like, I, I love my kids and my family so much. Yeah, committing that amount of time just wasn't reasonable for me anymore. Yeah, no, I get it. Yeah. Sorry yeah. to take you off track, but you know, we got we got yeah, so, sorry bodybuilding stuff. went down the bodybuilding rabbit hole. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, long story short, um, right about right about '98, I, I just kind of philosophically, uh, I was just seeing kind of everybody that I idolized drop dead. And, and, and I knew, I knew some people that gave me a lot of behind the scenes stuff. And I was like, oh, that guy, yeah, no, nah, that guy's a full blown diabetic. That guy, oh yeah, he's on dialysis, you know, stuff you didn't hear. Yeah. And, um, I, uh, also about the same time started to have a little bit of a shoulder issue and everybody that I knew had the same, you know, issues. So it just started to kind of really reorient me in terms of like what I wanted long-term, you know, and I'd been doing it a long, long time by 2000 I've been doing it a long long time so um I I went and and I'd been experimenting and tinkering all through the 90s and early 2000s with with different things and different ways of getting lean and a a lot of things came out of that actually a lot of a lot of things that are part of like kind of the ethos I have now which is one of those things really was beginning to um, inventory and account for the mechanisms of the weight rebound effect which which I loved um I was watching your video and you said you said, look, you get ripped in four weeks, you're fatter in eight weeks. And I'm um, yes. like, this guy gets it. Yes. So, and, and just the, the total poverty of the, the fact that's never been inventoried. Nobody talks about it. Nobody's bothered to do that. You know, so those are things that really bothered me, but really tipped the, tipped the, um, the bow under me for me was, um, I, in the early two thousands, I got laid off from my dot-com job and I had some time and I thought, well, you know, I'll do whatever I can in my dream, which would be fitness. And I started making websites for fitness models and, um, I got ripped. I was in great shape and I had the time to work out. And then I went to work for a technology company in the search engine industry and it turned into kind of a, a startup, um, a startup run where, you know, you're working 14, 15 hours a day and every day revenue shooting through the roof every day, you've got some new calamity to deal with and just, you know, typical startup. 
And so I had 30 years under my belt during that phase. It was a three-year run. And literally, I went into that uh, at like 212 and easy 5% body fat. I mean, I was peeled and came out of that 258 and 30% body fat. I mean, and it was just everything that I had experienced and done didn't operate and translate um, in the real world. It was like taking something out of the lab and put it in the real world or, or taking a Formula One and trying to offer it with it. I mean, that's essentially what it was. So so that was the thing that really changed me. And it was about 2006. I just had a kind of a Rosetta Stone or a Tiffany where I was just thinking about, okay, I got to lose this fat. Why did I get here? It's not like I didn't know what to do. And I just, I started looking at um, a meal and I started making notes around the meal of things I could have done differently. And and out of that came like, if I actually had just understood, you know, a, a, a lot more depth in terms of how to use food, I probably could have maybe not avoided this, but I could have mitigated the weight gain significantly. I think I still would have gained weight, but I probably could have, you know, wanted the impact several tens of percentage points. And so that was a big deal. And at that time, what was going on was um, the search engine industry was exploding and that's the industry I was in. And I knew a bunch of guys that were fat out of shape, guys that were great at SEO and they were killing it in terms of search engine optimization. They were overtaking the discussion. So on the one hand, you had people that really kind of had done it for years and kind of more or less had experience and knew what they were talking about. And they were just being diminutized in the conversation. And the guys that were winning out in the convo were guys that had no idea what they were talking about because they could just search engine rank anything. And that really like pissed me off just as a, you know, like, like a fan, like, like a, like a, like a bodybuilding guy. So I started this um, website and, and my only goal was I just want to put out good information. And at the time I'd really morphed into a longevity approach. So I called it longevity based fitness. And I just started publishing articles, research articles and making them accessible and all that. And this is like in the early 2000s. Uh, this was 2006. Yeah, 2006. And um, one of the articles I that I published was um, on the gut biome, and I was I was I'd read enough to know there had been the first articles published in 2006, and I kind of saw there was a connection to to weight in the gut biome, and so that was a, an area that um, that I put some research out on and, and put out some articles that actually have really aged well. If you go back and read those, it's like, oh, that was written yesterday. Not that mm. they, they really aged well. And that led me into, um, I had been slimming down over the past year and I, I'd done from like 258 to 230. It's kind of stuck around 230, 229. And then I, um, I, I did this basic protocol that is kind of the core of what I call the daisy cutter now. And it was not, nothing, nothing too complex, but really it was just a combination of a massive amount of substrate for bacteria and then a bunch of protein and no fat. And uh, basically in seven days, I went from 229 to 212, went and had my body fat measured in water, complete water immersion, you know, very, very low body fat. Um, Like literally it was like, you you would have thought I was on some kind of diuretic or steroid leaning up that fast. And the really noticeable thing was like, my poop did not stink at the end of that. It's, it was like uh, the equestrian (laughs) bowel movement. And completely recolonized the gut, energy skyrocketed. And that was kind of the beginning for me of this emphasis on the gut biome and what was possible with that. And so right about that time, I thought, okay, I'm going to create this software because nobody cares about all this research I'm putting out. Everybody's just coming in asking how to lose 10 pounds. And so I thought, well, I'll just make a, a weight loss software. 
note to entrepreneurs, never make a software unless you've got 20 million bucks <laughs> in investment. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. So that was, oh, that was, that was a very long, dumb road. And so I created this software, long story short. And um, in the early going, did some testing with like GNC and just to see if it would sell. It did pretty well. And um, went the route of using it in corporate wellness. So the first client uh, came on board in the 2011, and that was a major hospital chain, uh, Accela Health out in Pennsylvania. And the results were amazing, like amazing. Everybody, these were all nurses and doctors that went through it, um, which a lot of people don't know this, but I mean, because of the working conditions of nurses and doctors and you know medical professionals, very hard, very hard to eat good because they're on these very long shifts, super high stress and you know, all this so we had some really great results and a lot of the a lot of the anecdotal feedback was kind of the what you see now almost universally when when people recolonize the gut, which was like, oh my cravings went away and my energy skyrocketed and you know, all these things that are now attributable to specific taxa in the gut. So so that started this train of about, I would say five years of of trying to do corporate wellness, which, you know, definitely was the epitome of stumbling and bumbling. I mean didn't know what I was doing and got a few sales, got lucky, got some big clients, but really it was, it was kind of a, in terms of like, in terms of like taking the world by storm, it was kind of a mess. The one thing that came out of it was a boatload of research, like ton of research. Um, and so I was doing a lot of cool things way back. Like, like, um, I, I created this thing called BP university and there were just lessons in there, like how to target GIP and GLP one. This was like 2012 mm-hmm. using food. Um, in fact, that's how I sold it to the hospital was like, yeah, we do this thing, but we target the gut biome and then we get, then we target the Ingratins and, and they had their, their PhD in front of me going to what? The Ingratins, GIP, GLP-1. Oh, okay. <laughs> so out of all that came this thing where I would just meet like minds and, and wind up in these long, long-winded explanations of everything. One of those was Ron Penn at Quest who, um, is a lover of knowledge and a lover of what is real. And so we, we had, you know, lots of long drawn out conversations on different fronts and, you know, over a period of years, uh, that wound up, um, me parking at quest for a little bit and and working on a few things and kind of got to see the inside of that whole, um, thing, which is quite a story. I'm I'm sure somebody's going to do a movie on that one day. It's, it's quite a story, (laughs) but out of that, everything that came out of that was the whole ethos that was driving me was what worked in the real world over time. And out of all of that, everything, what came out of it was that the immune system is kind of the master regulator of the body. Like when you, like if you break down longevity and you go, why does fasting work? The, the endpoint mechanisms are all immune mechanisms like FOXO, signal pathway, macrophages, and all these things that are affected ultimately, it's the immune system. And so what came out of that was just a different to-do list, a different set of priorities that someone who doesn't make a living being fit, doesn't, you know, has a lot of pressure, a lot of things in their schedule, essentially a new foundation they could put into their schedule and they could do these things that were very non-time intensive. And the whole goal of all of that was that over time, um, these little adjustments would play out really, really big. And everything that's on that list in one way or another catches on some immune mechanism. So, and that's where the immunity code came out of. Um, and it's aged very, very well. I just saw a, a thing the other day, uh, a research study that came out and, you know, it was just, it was pointing to another master control point in longevity that's immune mediated. And, you know, so it, yeah, it's, it's aged well, I think. 
So, so anyways, that's where all this came from. Amazing. And so there's so much I want to unpack there. Was the, the, the one you saw recently, was that the alpha ketoglutarate? Um, I think yeah, I recently saw you post about a study recently that came out about alpha ketoglutarate. Was that the one you're speaking about, about the immune system? Yeah, no, uh, there was, there's a new research paper that was just published uh, this month, and it was looking at basically just looking at breaking down caloric restriction and why starvation seems to prolong life. And when you break that down, it's it's basically its effect on on different immune pathways. So particularly signal pathways, particularly in the kidney with FOXO and you know other things like that. Um, but also the reprogramming of macrophages. Um, so one of the issues you get into with age is you have these very tissue specific polarizations of immune cells that um, are changing their ratio. Um, and so as you're getting a little bit more of certain types of macrophages in, you know, like the bone and you're getting more in body fat and all this stuff, the collective effect of these things is to change lanes, uh, change signal pathway lanes for the body and potentiate um, a lot of other things that we don't want with aging. So that's that's kind of basically it. Interesting. You And I've got a very interesting and probably very deep theory around fasting. I'd love to kind of get into that because I know you... I believe you could you tell you believe you do practice some fasting, mm-hmm. maybe not as much as you did in the past, but you also believe there are some downsides. Yeah. So um everything that um that's just where I'm at right now, um kind of like the the learning it the hard way sort of thing, is that you have to begin with the end in mind. You kinda you kinda what I would say to anybody listening to this, first of all, is like if you're under fifty, get ready because your fifties is your second twenties. I mean, it really is. Like oh my gosh, like I'm blown away by what a good time my 50s have been. And if you are physically viable, you are, you know, vibrant, you, you've you really taken care of the machinery, it's better than ever when you get to this age. You don't have to lose a thing. You really don't. Like you got to reprogram your brain to stop thinking of that as old because you're going to get here. And then when you get here, if if you have your athletic range still, if you have like the energy levels that are similar to what you had and you know, all these different things, you know, you're not creaky and sore and all this stuff. It's amazing. I mean, it is really good. And and I think that clock is, I think our perception of what that can look like is rapidly shifting into something brand new that's never existed before. And you see all these really popular examples, like JLo just had her 54th birthday party. And, you know, like, wow. Yeah. <laughs> incredible. Come, come on. This is yeah. like a 30-year-old girl. It's amazing. Yeah. So, and there's tons of examples of that. So, so there's a new possibility made possible through proper nutrition and technology that's never existed before. So, I just kind of approach everything from the long term, <clears throat> and the one of the underlying flaws, and it's pervasive, and and it it blows my mind, blows my mind how pervasive it is, is that when we're talking about anything, we're not inserting a graph that shows time. And, and so I get asked all the time, hey, uh, what do you think about that? Is that good? And my answer is always the same. It's like, where on the graph? Where on the graph is it good? You mean in the early part? Yeah, it's fantastic. What about here? Well, it's the same, isn't it? No, it's actually very bad here. You know, Now here might be five years, but it's the point is that this, this flaw in our thinking, this separation from the reality of the, the body is not this static, input thing that you put in a unit and then you always get back the same unit it's quite dynamic and it changes consistently over time okay and it applies to absolutely everything everything okay so let's take fasting as a concept 
So fasting has um, massive benefits. Um, and if we put it in an ancestral context, something I talk about in my upcoming book, uh, actually, I think by the time this airs, it should be pre-sailing, is that if you look at the ancestral environment, you'll find one thing rings true consistently, and everybody will agree on it, and it's that nature naturally optimizes, okay? The rhythms of nature naturally optimize human physiology. And to the extent that the modern ecosystem separates us from nature in its most basic form, you find pathology, okay, consistently. So if nature's rhythms naturally optimize, then a really relevant question is, can we inventory the dietary aspects of nature's rhythms? And when you do that, you'll find there's four. There are four aspects to nature's rhythms. They're dietary. One is famine, okay? Like going without food, that's part of nature's rhythms. And if you accept the idea that nature naturally optimizes, nature's rhythms optimize, then it makes sense that there are benefits to famine. You know, there are benefits to famine when not done to excess. Like now famine done to excess means you die. Okay, that's not good. But some famine is good. Now, today, we don't call it that. We call it fasting, okay? There are other components to dietarily to nature's rhythms. Another one is feasting, okay? Feasting is a natural component of nature's rhythms. And feasting could mean something as simple as you were starving, you killed something, and you ate until you were stuffed and fell asleep, okay? That's a natural component. That has benefits. And we can inventory those. I wrote about it in the immunity code, you know? And it isn't even that well studied. I mean, there there are... Things that they have yet to really dive into, like circulating catabolic factor that are a result of feasting and all these amazing things. So, so that so it makes sense. If feasting is part of nature's rhythms, there are benefits to that. Another rhythm is abundance. So abundance is not the same thing as feasting. What you see with abundance is a season. Okay. And this is common in nature. So in nature, there's a season of abundance somewhere. Maybe it's, you know, the harvest came in. Maybe it's the herd came in. You know, somewhere, somehow, there's a season where there's abundance. And so if nature naturally optimizes, there are benefits to a season of abundance. And we can actually inventory what those are. We can say, well, yeah, actually, uh, there's a lot of repair. There's a lot of growth. Um, and depending on when the season happens, testosterone's higher, and we can put more muscle on during that season. Yeah. I mean, this is like a real thing. And finally, there is scarcity. Scarcity is completely unaccounted for today in today's dietary landscape. Now, scarcity, what that means is that you're eating outside your preferences. You know, I know I found some berries on the way. That's great. Oh, and here's some mushrooms. Great. Okay. Not my first pick, but I'll do it, you know? And, And so if nature naturally optimizes, scarcity has a very important role. And it's, it's completely been missed. It's not even categorized um, yet. Um, I talk about it a lot in the new book. The, the inevitable result of scarcity is dietary diversity. That's what it is. And so dietary diversity is an essential aspect that nature's rhythms will force anybody into. And anybody can prove this beyond any doubt, beyond anything any research paper says, go do a survival course and watch what happens. You mm-hmm. will engage in exactly that. You can prove it. It's easy. So the role of fasting is that number one, it's an essential aspect of nature's rhythms. And what we see is that it works best in conjunction with the other dietary rhythms in nature. It works best in conjunction with a season of abundance, with a season of scarcity, with a season of feasting. All They all work together. 
So we have looked at fasting kind of like you say, through a straw. You know, another analogy I would use is that we've looked at fasting like it's 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 a wheel with one spoke. Like, oh, I just took this spoke there. The wheel's great. Mm. <laughs> but in reality, there's a hundred different spokes on the wheel. And if you tweak one, you change the shape of the wheel. That's that's the truth. So with fasting, what I can say just kind of high level is we want to maximize the benefits of fasting and minimize the downsides. So the first problem we run up against is no one's bothered to really inventory the downside. They don't even acknowledge it exists, that there could be a downside because it's only good, Definitely. which is part of the, the binary sort of like binary buffoonery of this age. Like we think this age is really advanced, but really like you'll look back in 10 years and go, wow, it's really just buffoonery. Oh my gosh. So when we inventory fasting and we look at like, well, what can happen? Like if you're fasting too much, what's, what's the downside of that? So the first downside takes place in the gut. And it has to do with the way that the uh, mucin foragers in the gut lining get their food. So those those principally those bacteria, principally Acromantia, um, also fecal bacteria, Prosnitsi, um, their protein source is endogenously secreted, meaning like in your mouth, you're secreting mucus. That mucus is made up of glycoproteins and mucins, and that's their food source, internally secreted protein, okay? When you take in protein from the diet, you shift the equation completely, okay? So taking in protein from the diet means that nitrogen is coming into the body from the diet. That's not their food source, okay? So nature has provided a natural rhythm that balances out the, the populations of acromancia and, and keeps them in balance. Now, if you don't have enough acromancia, you have all kinds of problems, okay? Tons of problems. Um, and we can reverse engineer how to feed them. To the body it's easy actually it's like what what feeds this bacteria well um certain basically scarcity is what feeds it so the products of scarcity are things like berries you know things like um certain types of certain types of roots and fasting fasting feeds it because fasting ceases external nitrogen into the body and lets them do their thing that's a good thing to a degree again let's insert the time graph where on the graph where on the graph is, is acromancia good? And the answer is, well, um, kind of in small doses. It, it's absolutely amazing in small doses. You know, I've seen miraculous things from that. But what about if that's all there is? Okay, well, there's a word for that. That's called starvation. And what you see with people who are starved consistently is the gut lining wears out. They blow through the gut lining. Why? Because you have too much acromancia. What's acromancia do? It eats the gut lining. That's what it does. So too much of that, in other words, you're advantaging this bacteria in a star state. You're giving them what it needs to proliferate. Well, you get too much of it and it eats the gut line. Okay. So I have pretty consistently over the last five years had people come to me and go, oh, you know, I, you know, I did the keto thing and then I, and then I did the, the carnivore and then I, I did the fasting and, and ah, my gut's messed up. What did I do? And the answer is, the answer is too much. That's what you did. You did too much of a good thing. That's what you did. So fasting um, in the short term, let's call it starvation or famine, um, has a lot of benefit. There's no food. Okay, well, that's great because it allows the machinery of growth to turn off. Okay, it allows the machinery of housekeeping to, to kind of really ramp itself up. Okay, and we get all this housekeeping activity. We get rid of a lot of junk and it, it's really, really good. Okay. Um, What's been missing from our picture of this, this whole time, completely gone, is an understanding of the relationship of famine with foraging together. They've always worked together. 
always. You cannot find a case where that's not true in nature. Okay. So let's translate that into words we understand. What's that mean? It means that you're eating outside your preferences. Okay. So there's famine and foraging kind of running on two sides of the track. Like we've treated, we've treated fasting like it's, it's a one-sided train track. And the train runs only on this one side. No, it doesn't. Never has. So here's famine and foraging together. Like I, I'm really hungry. We haven't eaten in days. Ah, great. Ah, some, some, some root here at the swamp. Great. Let's dig it up and eat it. Okay. What do those roots feed? They feed key bacteria that exactly mimic the benefits of fasting. You could draw a checklist and go down the list and go, okay, so here's, here are these, here are these inulins in these roots. Uh, here are these berries with all these phenols. What do they feed? These less preferential foods, what do they feed? They exactly feed the bacteria, um, species of bifidobacteria, acromantia, that mimic the benefits of fasting. And like, and let's draw a checklist and go down it. What are the benefits of fasting? Well, we see AMK induction in fasting. Yeah, these bacteria do the same thing. Oh, interesting. Um, we see HDAC uh, inhibition take place. Yeah, these bacteria do the same thing. And you can just keep going down that list. Hmm. So if we draw a more complete picture, it's that fasting, starvation has always been uh, co-equals with foraging. Always. Always. All throughout history. Yes. Yeah. It's easy to prove. Um, and so when you reunite those two the way they're supposed to be done, you create an optimal and what the optimal does is it means you need less of the of of the one, okay. If when you when you're just doing just pure famine, okay, well yeah, that that does have benefits, okay. But where on the time graph are the benefits? Well, they're up front, right? Okay, great. Well, what happens if that's all there is? Well, but if that's all there is. Eventually, you die. But way before you die, what happens? Uh, a bunch of stuff begins to happen, okay. Um, the gut is is one of those things, but a bunch of other things happen. Um, well, what about when you add foraging back into the picture? Well, you get a better equation. And so the approach that I have to fasting is that it's part of nature's rhythms. It's essential. Um, it needs to be in the picture, but it needs to be in the picture along with foraging. And if you go a step further and begin to add timing into this whole thing, because we're diurnal creatures and timing makes a big difference on things, um, you begin to parse together an equation that's been completely missing. I mean, completely absent. And what I'm talking about here is we are separated from the reality of what's always been. And when we put these things together, we start moving into the reality of how things have always worked, which is typically before a feast, there was foraging and famine. Okay. Like you're, you're really looking to get some game or some fish. That's, and I don't care what you're, food preferences, stick you in a survival situation, okay, you are looking for game or fish. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I mean, there's a point where you're like, I'm really tired of eating seeds and berries and roots. I really could get something substantial. Everybody, everybody falls into that. Okay. Well, in between waiting for that, there is a period, some indeterminate period where there is going hungry and then finding, you know, small amounts of what essentially are less preferential foods, foraging foods. And during that period, the bacteria that mimic fasting are being amplified. So nature has provided this natural rhythm where these two things have always worked together to maximize organismal fitness, okay? And then when you add feasting into that, so now, oh, wow, gosh, uh, you know, we, 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 caught, um, we caught a deer. Fantastic, we can eat it. Let's eat the whole thing, right? Well, now, the, now you've brought in 
three out of the four of nature's rhythms. Now you've brought in foraging, famine, feasting. The only thing that's left is a season of abundance. Okay. Now we're talking a really accurate picture of how things work. <clears throat> so long-term, fasting needs to be in the picture. It just needs to be, um, it just needs to be married back to what it's always been connected to, which is a season of abundance, feasting, uh, foraging, which means eating less pre preferential foods that are for the most part demonized today. And, and then done in moderate doses. And when you do all that together, you've got a brand new equation that we've completely missed that is superior, that actually is connected back to nature's rhythms. So that's how I would explain it. Long-winded, but... No, that's amazing. But so, I wrote a book for that. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking forward to it. So before, before we go any further, I want you to, if you wouldn't mind, I'd love to understand the, the term nature's rhythms optimized. So I've never heard that before. It seems to make sense, mm -hmm. but I'd love to have you just kind of explain how you've come to that conclusion and why you think that's that's a uh, assume uh, it's an assumption. Why do we know that nature's rhythms optimized? Well, let's just start with timing. Let's just start with uh, night and day cycles. Okay, um, the the closer you match your activities and habits to daily cycles, to cycles of light and dark, for example the organism starts to work a little better. Like we can empirically show this is true. Like mm -hmm. you go, hey, yeah, if you begin to go to bed a little earlier, like closer to sundown, yeah, we begin to notice shifts. In fact, when we look at chrononutrition and, you know, um, uh, people who are like night owls and all that, there are clear differences between them and the early to bed, early to risers. I and mean, we can inventory this stuff. Yeah. Like, like, wow, uh, we see more insulin resistance. We see all this stuff with the with the late to bed, late to rise people. So, so just look at diurnal rhythms, that's one. Look at um, another example would be walking along the beach. You're picking up um, excess ionization that's in the air from the waves crashing. So when waves crash, they create a state of ionization and you're breathing that in just by walking at the beach. You're literally supercharging your cellular machinery from that just by walking close to the waves that are crashing or a waterfall will do the same thing. There's always been this thing in nature of like when water kind of crashes, it creates these ions and boom. That, and that's just, that's, a, that's empirically verifiable. You can, we can show that's true. Um, and on and on and on, we can show that when you take the human organism and just put it in nature, another one is just go, go on a forest walk for three hours. And then we can go measure your physiology after doing that. So these, these are, you know, that, that is a, one of the rare instances of, of um, something that, you know, sounds compelling and actually bears out empirically to be compelling. So, yeah. And so talk to me about how you incorporate this personally into like my micro cycles and macro cycles, because obviously there's short term, there's long term. And I know you're a very practical guy. Um, so I'd love to hear how you personally incorporate yourself or how you suggest people incorporate it. Yeah. So um, essentially what the immunity code is, you know, and to sell a book, you need a name, you know, that sells a book, obviously, but, but behind that, there's something very real, which is it's essentially a giant 48 hour pattern. It's essentially what it is, where in a given seven day cycle, we're accounting for the fact that number one, there is a seven day cycle. It's, it's verifiable. And, and the research on this stuff is really thin, just fascinating when you get into like the research on seven day cycles. I mean, it isn't just social. It actually extends into spiders and fish and, bio, and all biology. All biology runs on a seven-day cycle. So we're going to bring that reality back into the equation. Um, and then we're going to put um, a feasting, 
foraging famine pattern in that. Okay. So what we're doing here in a given week is we're going in and out of foraging and famine and then into a feast. Okay. So those three things are present in a given week. And then along with that, seasonally, we can have periods of abundance. So we can have a season, for example, let's say summer time to seasonal testosterone production. Um, and we can we can insert other variables in there like, you know, more food at certain times. Okay. So so it sounds complex, but it's it's kind of makes a lot of sense when you start to dig into it. But the basic unit is 48 hours. And so in the first 24 hours, we're mimicking foraging. That's the basic idea. And the way we're mimicking foraging is through foods that basically mimic what happens in a foraging scenario. Okay. And this is just easy to reverse engineer. Like you can kind of show there's this meme that's popped up, which is, you know, there's no one diet for everybody. But actually, when you when you look at ancestral populations, that's not what you see. What you see is that regionally speaking, everybody eats the same stuff. That's what you see. You know, you'll find groups and tribes and even nations. Everybody's kind of eating the same stuff. Now, there's there's variety when you when you get great distances when you throw geography into it and you go, oh, well, yeah, but the Chinese don't eat the same as the, as, you know, the, the, the South Americans. Okay. Yeah, that's true. But within these local populations of different size are pretty much eating the same stuff actually when you look at it. So, so that kind of throws a wrench in that. And there's reasons why that's true. So, but all that to say in that first 24 hours where we've essentially just reverse engineered which foods feed the bacteria that mimic fasting and we're trying to feed those. So these are things like resistant starches, uh, berry phenols, uh, mushrooms, things things that feed those bacteria that mimic fasting. Okay. And we're mimicking the foraging state. We're even going subcaloric during that and keeping protein a little lower. Okay. Then the next day there's Would you say no protein or just lower protein? Situationally dependent. So it just depends on the situation. There there's kind of a there's kind of a base template which is okay. Hey, if you want to mimic foraging the most, then then keep your protein really low on that first day, okay? And and that's how you do it. Really hard for most people to do that because you're eating typically outside of food preferences, and and really mimicking foraging means, you know, you're you're not in a most preferred situation. The most preferred situation is feasting. That's that's our that's most people's preference. But there's variations on that, and there's several variations on that. So you can, again. I just keep throwing in this this time map and go, so our, our big long-term picture is, you know, we're looking to do this, but we can have these scalpel insertions, you know, like for example, post-workout, you know, we can go 2.5 grams of protein post-workout here. Okay. It's not changing the big picture. We're just adding in a functional layer. Now we might lose a little bit of the, you know, mimicking foraging perfectly, but that's okay because it's a different variable in the equation. Okay. Um, but in its base form, yeah, we're, we're going a little lower protein, a little subcaloric, okay, on that first 24 hours. Um, in a practical sense, what I do is my protein's a little higher in that first 24 hours. I don't usually have it at breakfast, but I'll usually include it at lunch and definitely at dinner. <clears throat> um, and so the goal is just, I'm not mimicking foraging 100%. I'm just on a bell curve. I'm just trying to approximate it to a degree. And so there's some resistant starch in my diet. There's, you know, it's again, the natural rhythm of scarcity is it's going to force diversity into the diet. And so I'm just mimicking scarcity. So there's diversity in my diet on that first day. 
And what that's doing is it's priming those same bacteria that mimic fasting. And then coming into that second day, there's a short fast. Okay. So like typically if I ate my last meal at seven, I'm going to eat my first meal then, then in the second part of that 48 hours at around noon. And so there's a good, you know, 12, 13, 14, 15 hours in between that, that meal. And that's about as good as I need. Okay. Um, and then with modern science and modern technology, we can toss in other things for different objectives. Example would be a really, a really important objective we can insert when we want would be clearing um, HIF-1. Okay. So when you look at every, virtually most pathologies that, that we want to get out of bed to be concerned about, cancer, gut dysbiosis, obesity, you're going to find excess HIF-1 in an excess. So HIF-1 is the body's backup system for oxygen. Okay. And its function is to switch on glycolysis. Okay. So it lets cells operate without oxygen. Okay. So that's a good thing short term. And there's lots of benefits to that. It's really good to do that like post-workout. It's really good. However, when over time, as we're aging, you start to get stabilized HIF-1, you get a real problem. And the problem is there's two forms of HIF-1. Uh, one of them lives in the cell nucleus. Uh, that's the So HIF-1 HIF is the 1A form and the 1B form. And the 1B form is a gene activator. It turns on VEGF and other genes. And in hypoxic cells like cancer cells, it's exactly what they need. It helps them vascularize, helps them run on glycolysis. Okay, so that's why you find HIF-1 with most cancers. So it's a good idea to clear that every now and then. It's actually pretty simple. Um, so I talked about in the immunity code things like Bicalin and Apigenin. You know, they do different things like prevent the um, translocation of HIF-1 into the nucleus. And so in a fasted state, it's a good idea to have different goals. And maybe this day I'm I'm just kind of checking HIF-1 off. Okay, so I can inhibit that with some modern technology, going to fast till noon, and then um, I'm going to feast. And so there's lots of different ways we could do this. My preference is usually fitting it into two meals in the day. And they're just feasting meals. They're dense in protein, dense in fat, very little carbs to no carbs. And and that basic 48-hour pattern is your core unit. And then there's all these variations you can do on that. Um, but that's it. And so what that's allotting for is scarcity. So we've allotted for dietary diversity. We've kind of reverse engineered the gut bacteria. And probably most important is that we are accounting for the entire insulin family of hormones. And that's never been done. Like, there is not a diet that exists that treats insulin the way that it really works, which is it doesn't work by itself. It's a family of hormones. All these hormones matter. So the incretins, GIP, GLP-1 matter. Adiponectin matters. Glucagon matters. All these hormones matter and they all work in conjunction with insulin. And you can tweak any one of those and you tweak how insulin works. And the living proof of that is these GLP-1 agonists that people are getting lean on. And it is not simply caloric reduction. You're seeing improvements in insulin function, and that's deriving the equation. So the, the, the benefit, which is sort of an engineered thing in this, is that when you introduce these ancestral rhythms, boom, you, you connect back into the entire insulin family of hormones. You're stimulating GIP, GLP-1 in that second 24 hours. In that first 24 hours, you're going right at insulin. And you're and you're you're hitting adiponectin and, and you're you're hitting the entire insulin family of hormones through diet. And so that's a kind of a bit of a deep dive into it. No, but, that's, um, that's incredible. And all this is detailed in your book, The Immunity Code. 
Uh, this is the new one that's coming out, which is uh, called the the Way, um, subtitled "The Immunity Code Diet: A Return to Dietary Sense." <laughs> yeah, well, it sounds incredible, and I'm sure everyone listening to this is going to want to dive into that. You brought up GLP one. I'm curious where you stand on semaglutide and other GLP one agonists, just currently, because mm-hmm. just because it's such a hot topic. Absolutely massive benefits to these things, particularly um, Monjerno, which is uh, both GIP and GLP-1. And I've I've had over the years, it's, it's a big number. It's it's over 50,000 people that have come through systems I have created for body fat reduction. And what I can say from having done that, in fact, just a little minor side out here, <laughs> one of the first big engagements that I did when I created my software was the city of Phoenix. And we did these flights of 500 people at a time, you know, four flights of that in a day over two days, like 4,000 people coming into the room and completely changed my whole perspective on fitness doing that. Okay. Because prior to that, I didn't really understand, like, I didn't understand weight loss or diet. I didn't like, why don't you just work out? My gosh, like, what's the problem here? And then what I saw were literally thousands of people that couldn't like like just you just look across the room you're like they're not going to work out it's not going to happen <laughs> just for a bevy of different reasons it's probably going to happen and so when you start to deal with those types of populations what you run into rapidly is it doesn't matter what you throw at them there are people that cannot drop body fat it doesn't matter how low you go in calories how how much bioidentical hormones you throw at them it doesn't matter okay they cannot drop body fat no matter what um, and when you run across enough of those, um, to see something come along like Manjaro, where, wow, for the first time, wow, then the chains are moving. Criminy. That's amazing. Okay. So, so that's the plus side of it. The downside of it um, is two things. Um, at the high level, which is not being discussed anywhere, is when you talk to um, doctors who are very familiar with drugs and the life cycle of the drugs, we come back to the question, uh, does Manjaro work? Or does these GLP-1 agonists work? And the question would be, where on the map or on the grass? Okay. Because doctors who administer drugs to patients over long, long periods will tell you, yeah, that most of them stop working about year five. They just don't work anymore. Okay. And, and that we would expect. The other, the other complication is nobody has factored in the relationship between, again, going back to the spokes on a wheel. Um, so you're targeting one aspect of insulin function, which is GLP-1, but you're doing it with um, a synthetic form that does not mimic the half-life of real GLP-1, real GLP okay? It sits there. And so, so the questions I would ask is, wait a second, what's the long-term effect of this in relation to uh, uh, GIP, adiponectin, Glucagon. I mean, there's, there's, there, this is an equation here. It's not as, it's not a linear thing. It's not like, oh yeah, just flip GLP one on problem solved. Doesn't work like that. So, again, where on the map, where on the time map does this work? And so, if we begin to look at that, right now, what we're seeing is just the goodies. Like, oh yeah, it's working. Everybody's getting skinny on this. Fantastic. Okay, but what's unknown, what nobody's bothered to study is, okay, so five years from now. How, how is this affecting the interaction of all these sort of insulin, insulotropic hormones? I mean, there's currently no data on that at all. None. Nobody's looking at it. So I, I'd be very concerned about that. And what that brings us to is what the data currently suggests is that if you stay on them, okay, you can beat the weight rebound. If you go off, 
95% of the people are going to regain the weight. So, yeah. So, so that's where we're at with it. Um, I think that it's a step forward. It's, it's a, you know, solving one problem, which is people that cannot move the chains. Um, and it's introduced a whole new set of problems that have not been addressed adequately. That's what I would say. Yeah. Incredible. Um, so one other thing you said very early on in the conversation today, you brought up your daisy cut, and I think my audience would be very angry with me if I didn't get you to describe what that is, considering the claim you made there. So, yeah, if you wouldn't mind sharing what that is, I'd love to hear about it. Yeah, sure. Uh, so first of all, all credit, you know, to to all credit where it's due. This was highly influenced by Chris Aceto and his his early work back in the early '90s um, with uh, pre contest cutting, which was he would basically put people on. Um, uh, put people on very simple carbs three, four weeks out and then change the carb type with each week until you got to the highly cruciferous complex carbs, you know, prior to the show and people are getting ripped on those and then go back on to the complex carbs to water or to uh, low glycogen. And so that aspect, taking fat very low, taking roughage very high, taking protein high, it, it kind of has its genesis in that. Um, the side benefit that I just stumbled onto was that it completely changes the gut biome out while you're doing it because what you're doing is you're flooding the gut with competing substrates. So protein fermentation doesn't really do what we would like it to do gut-wise long-term. It's short-term, you can kind of get away with it. Long-term, a lot of things to think about. But when you combine it with the right substrate, then you offset the deleterious effects of too much protein fermenting in the gut. By the way, uh, there's very good research that shows on average about 16 grams of uh, protein reaches the colon on a daily basis. So protein does reach the colon, it does ferment. But basically just by taking fat very low, taking um, your roughage very high, and it's the right kind of roughage where it has a lot of inulins and um, you know cruciferous vegetables, things like that, you are giving the perfect storm to grow uh, species that help you get lean. So bifidobacteria explodes. Um, and you, you can do that energy. early in, in the process? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's basically just as many days as you can stand of taking fat to zero. Um, massive amount. I mean, like, it takes you 45 minutes to chew this stuff. Like, you know. So, like, what what sources are we referring to? Uh, so, like, your, your, your standard, yeah. Well, your standard would be, like, uh, for me, what I would do would be about 15 egg whites, um, along with about that much raw green beans you know, or, or broccoli or a mix of things, bok choy, broccoli, like, and all that stuff. So that, that's, that's what I would be looking to do. And happens pretty fast. Um, what you'll see is, by the way, another really important thing. Uh, so the day's cutter works, right? Yeah. Where on the, where on the time map does it work? Okay. Cause what you'll see, I could, I could tell you after years of this thing, in the early going, the early years, it's freaking incredible. Like the first few times you do it, as you get into trying to repeat it, the POMC neurons in the brain completely rebel. <laughs> and all of the brain's food reward pathways rebel and it gets harder and harder to do. So you're not dealing with a static equation. Every time you every time you introduce this, you're shifting the equation. Um, so it's best used strategically, uh, but, but that's basically it is... Um, a boatload of roughage, a boatload of uh, very lean protein and, you know, three, four meals a day like that and 45 minutes of chewing and pooping greens, you know, that's, that's it. So ju just egg whites as a protein source and a ton of vegetables. Oh, no, no. So um, uh, turkey, super lean seafood, uh, super lean, ultra lean beef, you know, all that. You kind of have to mix that in because one of the very interesting things about it is it's a really great self-experiment to do 
to discover the brain's uh, reward circuitry and how powerful it is over food. Like you can kind of like in the early going, like the early days or the first or second time you do it, the brain hasn't built up um, an adaptive response to it. And so you can kind of just buzzsaw through it. But then, you know, doing it too many days or trying it too many times, there's this compensatory activity where like, like I've reached the end of my life cycle. I, I could not eat another green bean right now to save my life. You know, I have completely rewired my brain for that one food. So now when I do it, I have to mix in a lot of other things, you know, a lot of other roughage to make it work. But uh, it's a very interesting experiment for like how quickly the, like how important the brain's neural circuitry for food reward is and how too much of anything can, the brain can rapidly adapt to that, rapidly adapt. So to what that. are you experiencing? Well, so I, I did the first one in 2007 and that was amazing. And it was, I just had an, I had an iron will and I just, I bolted through seven days of it. By day seven, I was just not a fun person to be around at all. <laughs> the lack of, I mean, our brains need fat, the lack of fat. And so when you have no fat, the brain's got to get it somewhere. It starts breaking down your fat. It's got to, the brain gets priority, you know? And so got very moody by about day seven, ripped to the bone on it. Had to drink a ton of water. So I was drinking, you know, 16 ounces, eight times a day but just ripped to the bone by doing it that first time. I think I did 16 weeks of that like every year. It's amazing how professional bodybuilders like, I mean, it takes a lot of stuff. It's, it takes a lot of chemistry to pull that off. It takes a lot of things, you know, and it gets, I, I don't know, you, you've done that at the highest level. So I, I would assume it gets harder and harder over time to do that. So maybe, but I think for me, I found what worked and I repeated it. I was mm-hmm. like, once I figured it out, I was like, all right, doing the same thing again. So yeah, anyways, I don't want to go down that path, but that's interesting. Yeah. So I didn't realize Chris was was kind of the uh, catalyst for that. Chris is a great, great guy. And I know him very well. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Brilliant guy. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. I did. And so mechanistically, you're basically just starving the body of fat, but you said there's also some benefit there at the level of the immune system and the microbiome. Yeah. What you're doing is, um, so the microbiome is rapidly reprogrammable. I mean, within hours, you know, and then particularly days. Um, and there's research that's shown this. Uh, there was a landmark study in 2009. I talked about the immunity code called uh, "Human Gut Communities Are Rapidly Modifiable with Cruciferous Vegetables." Blah, blah, blah. Mm. And and so, literally within hours, and and certainly within days, you can change the whole gut taxa out. And 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 you you can know you've done that by the smell of your poop. And and it, and it's so distinct. It's and what. <laughs> There've been a lot of people that I've had do this over the years and, and, and they all report back the same thing, which is like, yeah, my poop turned green and it didn't smell weird. Yeah. Um, but the benefit of that is that when you skyrocket bifidobacteria populations like that, your B vitamin production grows up and it, it, it creates a, a nice lasting effect um, to, to weight cuts. If, if you compensate for the deprivation phase of, of like, you know, the brain's reward system just kicks in rapidly and it's, you know, it's it's telling you you haven't had enough satiation and satiety from food, so we need we need more of that, and so you kind of have to hack that piece of it. Just be willing to create a time bound goal and like I'm going to do it for this amount of time and stick with. Mm. Yeah, and I think it's a good experiment. I, I think it's a good functional tool that you can use if you really want to reprogram the gut, um, and it can be very very useful for that. Um, and I think it, there's probably even an argument to kind of do it. If not seasonally, every couple years, you know, for sure. Um, I can tell you that when the first time I did it, the benefits were very long lasting, like like years of, of just that initial retune of the gut. 
as far benefits as far as your ability to stay lean or what specifically? Everything. Yeah. Ability to stay lean, energy, everything. Yeah. And it's because, so the, first of all, the phytobacteria is so entwined with insulin function that it's very difficult to have a talk about optimizing insulin without talking about the phytobacteria. Very, very tough. I mean, and you can go down and study all the areas that the phytobacteria impacts insulin function. Bile acids is one of them. So the composition of bile acids and secondary bile acids um, has a dramatic impact on insulin function. And you can rapidly alter that through substrate. You can change the ratios of bile acids and in turn, it helps insulin be a lot more sensitive. And that's directly a result of the way bifidobacteria interacts with bile acids. And, and, and there's good, good research on that. Do you have a book or an article on this? The one that's coming out, yeah. <laughs> okay, solid, perfect. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, one of the things you spoke about um, on a social media post, I'd love to hear you speak about this, was just the negative effects of supplementing with MCT. So I've been a long-term user of, of MCT. I'm curious what your thoughts are there. Well, I think it's like anything else. You know, it's just where, where on the map of time, you know. Um, so there, there's a, I think there's a very important distinction that needs to be made, which again, the temptation to, to go into our, our, our kind of binary thinking of are MCTs good, are they bad? Um, at the high level, we're always looking about the cumulative effects over time. That's, that's kind of our big guiding post. Um, and so that being said, that's not the same thing as the strategic insertion or the scalp, scalpel-like insertion of, you know, a big dose um, example would be during a fast, you know, like like today I'm doing a fast, I'm combining a bunch of things and a strategic dose of MCTs here is really good. This is something that's going to be very beneficial, okay, versus the cumulative effects of just overdoing them all the time. That's another animal. So you can you can do very large doses of MCTs in a in a a strategic scalpel sort of insertion, and there's no issue with that. It's it's really just when we begin to pull back and look at the big picture, you know, with MCTs. And so, what's what's big picture? So, the thing with MCTs is that when you begin to look at when you begin to look at medium chain triglycerides, and you know, w- what are the benefits of these things? Th- there's there's quite a bit of benefit to them. There, there can be negatives with respect to different things that they impact. You know, you've got to, we've got to factor into the equation where are they getting burned off. You know, take a look at like how all this works. And one of the issues to think about is just the impact of MCTs on mitochondrial function. Okay, and for the most part, they're they're highly beneficial, like in these strategic insertions, or you know, if we just study them in the short term. Um, when you begin to expand that out a little bit and look at like the chronic use of them. It gets into some territory that is not well studied, but there could be some detriments possibly. So, okay, makes sense. Like many things, um, I'm curious what your perspective is on optimized cardiac function because I know you're in that yeah. of frequent bouts of, of cardiovascular yeah training. Yeah, I'm curious if if you have any specific approaches, any specific uh, thoughts, mm-hmm. protocols. Yeah, optimization there. Yeah, uh, in my opinion, single most important thing above everything else over time. It, it, it will be the thing that is the most important. It'll be more important than muscle. It'll be more important than anything else is. And um, I, I mean, I've seen this play out. You know, I've, I've been on hospital beds where it is the ability of the heart and the lungs to get oxygen into the tissues is the thing that makes the difference between life and death itself. Okay. So the, the first thing I would say about that is the older I've gotten, it is my top priority. 
like like I might not um I might not have time to do strength training today, but the one thing I will do are little short bursts across my day of something to get me winded. And I think it's as simple as just getting winded a couple of times a day. Um, what I typically do is um, I will ride my bike to the bottom of the hill where I live. Um, I will do a 200 meters. I will hop back on my bike, ride up the hill, which is quite a workout. And I'm pretty winded. And it, I think it takes me all of about five minutes to do the whole thing. You know, but doing that two to three times a day, every day, keeping keeping the cardiovascular system flush and stimulated and worked uh, a few times a day, that is kind of your minimal workload, maximum return, in my opinion. Yeah, that's great. As far as dietarily, just eating, following the immunity code style diet that you brought you broke down for us today, uh, seems to what would, in your opinion seems to make sense for optimization of cardiovascular function as well. Yeah. So, one of the really neglected aspects of health is the health of the endothelium, mm-hmm. um, and you you can't be serious about health until you take the health of the endothelium seriously. You just you just can't. Okay. So, when when we begin to break down the endothelium. And look at like, well, what's it take to keep this healthy? Okay, there, there's there's a couple of big players here. One is what amounts to leaky gut, same kind of idea, but in the vessels. And so as we age, the vessels start to kind of open up a little bit, and they, and we get leaky vessels. Okay, that is as serious a problem as leaky gut. It's pr- it's probably more serious when the interstitial fluid starts to leak through the vasculature, um, and it's, it's a problem for a lot of reasons. One of the reasons it's a problem is that as you begin to take damage on the inside of the vasculature, so the way the vasculature works is, it's it's kind of like if you could imagine the Earth's tectonic plates, you know, these, these plates kind of fit together. Yeah. And, and so the vasculature, if you when you break it down, it looks like a bunch of tectonic plates molded into a tube. Well, as these plates shift and open up, in the gaps between the openings, you get inflammation, okay? That's an immune problem. So what happens is, Basically, as this gets inflamed, monocytes begin to adhere and start doing their thing. And so they're putting out inflammatory signals here. Okay. So like with leaky gut, when the gut perfuses, you get like polysaccharide and you get macrophages responding to that and you get this inflamed scenario. Imagine that in the vasculature. So that's what begins to happen. And so when when you that's the first problem. The second problem are the NOX enzymes. So the NOX enzymes are the only pro-oxidative enzymes in the body. And they they exist for a very good reason. So so the vasculature needs to be pro-oxidative, sort of in its healthiest state when we're young. You know, we need to the vasculature needs to open up. The problem is is when that goes pathological. Okay. And then what you have is this scenario where the NOX enzymes are oversubscribed in the lining of the endothelium. Okay. And so you have to think of it this way, you have these enzymes that are essentially free radicals that are just turned on constantly. And now what happens is the endothelium becomes inflamed. Okay. So as the endothelium becomes inflamed, that's a whole body problem. You you cannot have health with fat working the way it does because that affects the heart. It affects everything. And this is common with age. It's what we see with age. So let's reverse engineer our way out of that one. Okay. So when we begin to look at like, okay, well, how can we begin to address you know, these sort of system-wide problems, these kind of excess pro-oxidative action that's taking place in the endothelium. And at the same time, 
uh, the endothelium itself is not vasodilating the way that it used to. So it's making excess nitric oxide, but it's not it's not, it's not vasodilating. You get, I mean, these are this gets complex. Okay, mm -hmm. one of the answers is simply dietary diversity. So when you begin to look at like well, what reverses this stuff, what foods reverse this, you come across some some big suspects: green leafy vegetables and citrus. Okay. Citrus has a profound impact on the health of the vasculature. In fact, when you look at like all of the supplements that seem to help and reverse endothelial issues, they're all citrus, like uh, naringenin, you know, all these all these different like citrus supplements. That that's what seems to work. Um, also, green leafy. So, inorganic nitrate has a profound impact on the health of the vasculature. Like it's. Provable. We can show that, that all that's to say is that when we plug back into nature's natural rhythms, um, scarcity drives dietary diversity. Dietary diversity has benefits. What is it? Well, one of them is the endothelium because you're taking in the diversity of foods that help to repair the endothelium. And when you eliminate dietary diversity, you're eliminating the control points that repair the endothelium. Yeah, this this is really important. So, so to answer your question, number one top of the list is dietary diversity and it's it's really it's really like there's no there's no big like you know flip a switch and everything's better in there what there is is incremental pulses day after day year after year that accumulate and add up into like the health of the endothelium and it's through diversity in the diet so so that's a big thing the other thing is just these regular pulses of cardiovascular exercise interspersed throughout the day and again you know that's go study like um any any existing today ancestral population you'll find that every day there's a, there's you're getting winded every single day yeah yeah every every single day the heart's pounding and you're getting winded and it may not be like you're doing you know drop sets you know with with bench press or squat but it's it's something that involved you getting winded and we're and usually it's running you know um so so those are the two big prescriptives in that the other thing too is that, you know, we're in such a marvelous age now with uh, peptides and, you know, all all these other like really cool kind of things that can kind of add another layer into the mix. So between between um, dietary diversity, small pulses of cardiovascular, just getting winded a couple times a day, and then modern science, there's a pretty good little recipe there um, that is easy to do that will benefit in the long term. Yeah, so I'd love to have you talk about peptides. One of my following my final questions was, what current, you know, cutting edge supplement or modality are you most excited about, or are you studying right now? So I'm curious if you have any peptides that you are excited about, or you're, um, app, you're using yourself. Yeah, um, I think I've kind of come through my um, bloom on the rose phase with peptides. Uh, I think what I found in my own experience is the kind of work. Um, if you want to dose them very high, certain ones like CJC 1295 with Epimorlin, you know, and you want to do that three times a day, yeah, wow, that definitely works. Mm -hmm. um, not really my thing. I'm more concerned about the long term of that, and I don't really know what it would be. So, um, but peptide-wise, um, there there is one that I have found is 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 nice, and so I, I don't. I'm not on TRT or. Um, you know, anything like that right now, but there is a peptide that I found, which is testo, uh, I can never pronounce this thing. It's a, it's a Russian peptide, testo, testofulin, I think it is. Um, and, and I used that one in oral and it, it's kind of like a super creatine, I guess would be the best way to explain it. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't do, you're like, you're not going to put muscle on or anything like that, but it does in that way that creatine kind of inflates the muscles a little bit. You, you kind of notice that with it. 
you get you get a little bit of the muscles being inflated. I've never even heard of it. Just a fueling. Yeah, um, it's one of the Cavinson. Um, actually, uh, let me just. I think I can probably pull up the actual name of the thing, um, and then go to tricks. So test test a fuel in with go to tricks. Those two I found in an oral um, pretty well. One either go to go to spot. Can you spot? Yeah, G O T A T R I X. Those those two I've noticed. Yeah, I guess the best way to describe would be kind of like a super creatine. You know, mm-hmm. like like like. Creatine in the early going inflates the muscles. Um, you get that as a little bit more, I think, and that's that's what I've noticed with it. So, and you know, with that being said, I don't think I can call myself natural anymore because that's not natural. Um, but I'm not doing I'm not doing TRT or steroids or you know anything like that. I'm trying to. As I thought, I might not try those things. I'm just kind of saving that for like when I'm in my 60s. I'm looking at RFK as my hero, and maybe I can do that. So. What a legend, right? Talk about a role model to come out and, and show himself like that and, and looking the way he does at his age. And, and I hope he gets support because he seems like he's got good intentions for sure. Yeah, I 100% align with that. Yeah, funny, man. Yeah, the the climate politically... Actually, now that we're on the, the immunity code, I'm curious if, if you had any protocols, you don't have to tell me your opinion on, on vaccines, but if you had any protocols during COVID on boosting the immune system for people who are ultimately getting sick? Because, you know, obviously that was kind of a lesser conversation right now, but still a very relevant conversation in this world is, you know, COVID, the, the vaccine situation and uh, anything you advise there as far as getting people to boost their immune system. Yeah. Um, so the number one thing I would say is that immunity is not something you can get in a bottle. Um, you can help it from a bottle, but you have to understand that immunity is so entwined with metabolism that you can't separate the two. They, they are one and the same. And it's a discipline. Immunometabolism is an entire discipline. And so when you begin to look at really a robust immune system, you have to begin to factor in metabolism into the equation. And so that's why, you know, what you saw with COVID was, you know, people that had poor metabolic function were most at risk. And it's because the very specific pathways uh, of metabolism intertwine with the immune system. I mean, you can you can see that just with just with the ACE receptor. And so you have you know um, and one through seven, and you know you have kind of the healthy um, healthy ACE peptides, and then you have kind of the unhealthy you know ACE one and all that stuff. So the the first thing to understand is that if you want a robust immune system, you have to begin with diet and you have to begin with metabolism because that's the foundation of the whole thing. And then on top of that foundation, you can add all kinds of goodies. Um, I came out with a list of goodies like early on in, in, in the whole COVID thing. And, you know, so there are supplements that, you know, basically intercept furin and do a bunch of other things. And so I've just kind of run through a random list. Um, Fucoidin, Bicalin, um, boatload of vitamin D, definitely zinc, natokinase, a whole, whole bunch of like, you know, additional things you can stack on top of that. Red phenols, iodine three glucoside, you know, all, all of these things are fantastic stuff. I've been asked that one so much and it's kind of misleading to tell people, yeah, just take this because mm-hmm. really, if you want real immunity, you have to focus on the metabolic. Yeah, that's true. This is no way around it. Yeah. So natokinase is something I've been using for quite a few years now. I'm curious uh, where the application is there for the immune system because I've never used it for that for that reason. What did you say melatonin? Natokinase. Oh, natokinase. Yeah, so that's an interesting one. COVID is primarily a disease of the vasculature. 
when you break it down, it, it actually is a vasculature. So when you look at like the um, acute aspects of COVID where you get into um, ARDS, what's going on is what's called a Bradykin storm. Okay. And so bradykinin is, it's essentially a protein that regulates um, fluid flux in and out of the vasculature. And what you see when COVID gets really pathological in the lungs is that you get this explosion of bradykin. And what happens is the vasculature in the lungs opens up and you leak all this interstitial fluid into the lungs. And so that's, that's, that's a life-threatening issue. That's a problem for that. And so the health of the vasculature becomes essential. And natokinase is kind of like one of the best things that you can use to keep the endothelium really, really healthy, along with citrus. Amazing. I'm doing some, yeah. doing a few things right. Joel, <laughs> uh, man, I, I absolutely uh, love all this information. That was an incredible conversation. I'll be respectful of your time. Um, if you could tell us where we can get this new book as it comes out, I'm sure everyone in the audience will jump on it to support you. Yeah, thank you. Uh, so the book is The Way, subtitled The Immunity Code Diet, A Return to Dietary Sense, and it will be available on Amazon and at beepnutrition.com. If you buy it from us, then we don't have to pay Amazon, so even better, but whatever whatever works. And uh, so that's where you'll find it. Amazing. We will link to that in the show notes. We'll also link to your social media because I know you're very active on Instagram. Thank you so much. Truly, I'm a fan. I will continue to be a fan and a follower and um, definitely be diving into that book. Ah, thank you. It's been a blast. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Joel. That's a wrap, ladies and gents, boys and girls. Thanks for being here. I am Ben Pakulski. This mission of muscle intelligence is to give you back your confidence, to give you back your body. We talk about freedom a lot as men, don't we? We talk about freedom, and sometimes that's associated with political freedom. Uh, you know, we want to live in a place that's politically free. Sometimes we talk about financial freedom. But I like to think about and talk about uh, physical freedom. And physical freedom means the ability to do what I do, when I, what I want to do, when I want to do it, uh, with whom I want to do it ultimately. And if I want to get up and play basketball, if I want to get up and surf, if I want to get up and squat, if I want to get up and run, if I want to get up and play tennis uh, or any of the above, jump on a trampoline, I want a body that supports my life as an adventure. Freedom to move is maybe the most under communicated freedom there is. So imagine being locked in a body that can't ultimately do what you want it to do. Gentlemen, the walls are closing in around you. You're getting older, whether you like it or not. We are getting older, but getting worse is an option. You don't have to get worse as you age. Maybe at some point, there's going to be a slightly diminished physical capability, but I hope by the time that happens in me, we'll have, we'll have solved that problem in science. And to be honest, I think we're getting very close. I think in many ways, we've solved the problem right? And it's, it's hormone optimization, it's environment optimization, it's training optimization, nutrition optimization, eating in accordance with nature's rhythms, as Joel just spoke about, um, letting your body kind of eat in this natural way, right? What are you meant to do? What does your body evolve to do? And we're so far from these natural evolutionary ways of existing that that's what causes the divergence from health, right? The, clo the further you diverge from your ancestral evolutionary ways of being, the further you're going to diverge from health. And so, um, ladies, gentlemen, thank you for being here. If you're interested in working together with myself or a muscle intelligence coach to help you optimize for nature's rhythms, to help you optimize your physical body, to help you optimize your metabolic capability, your metabolism, your ability, your body's ability to use and extract nutrients, ultimately your ability to get lean and shredded. Your body naturally wants to be lean. Getting lean, healthy, and muscular should be a natural state for men. And yet we get so far away from it. It should be a natural state for women too that are healthy. 
but yet our society has ultimately moved us away from this natural state of being lean, healthy, muscular, mobile, and fully physically capable. So if you're someone who's tired of being tired, if you're tired of being incapable, then what we specialize in is ultimately giving you back your physical capability, your metabolic capability, and your confidence. You know, the thing that we talk about in muscle intelligence is confidence and character comes through commitment and challenge. That's a simple way to think about it. confidence and character, which is, I think, the two most desirable traits in men. You tell me if I'm wrong. We want to be confident. We want to know our strong character, strong of character. That comes through commitment and challenge, however that looks for you. Gents, if you want to join me, join me head over to muscleintelligence.com slash apply, A-P-P-L-Y. Let's apply to jump on a call. I'd love to chat with you. And if it's a great fit, we'll let you know. If it's not, we'll tell you uh, ultimately who might be able to help you solve the challenge that you're trying to experience. That's muscleintelligence.com slash A-P-P-L-Y. Gents, ladies, thank you. Have a great one. Thank you so much for tuning into Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Bikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest and products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.